find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. We were at a special event, which was the Coxie Space Day. There we had the chance to talk to a great variety of different people and talk about their fields of interest. May they be students or professors. We talked about various aspects of cognitive science, such as neuroscience, linguistics, philosophy or artificial intelligence, and many more. All the interviews were kept rather short, and another exception of our bonus episodes will be that not only Zünke and me are hosting, but also our two amazing producers Alina and Sophie, and both will jump into this role of being an interviewer. So stay curious and tune in. Hello and welcome. I would like to ask you to introduce yourself and what you do and what your topic of interest is. Hi, yeah. First of all, thank you for inviting me. It's super nice to be here. My first experience to be a guest on the podcast in English, so I don't know, kind of nervous. <laughs> My name is Victoria. I'm doing PhD in the Osnabrück University uh, in computational neuroscience. Yes. Okay. <laughs> in neuroinformatics lab, if that is important. <laughs> That's nice. So I would like to ask you a first welcome question. Sure. And I would like to answer the question as a kid, I always wanted to be. Yeah, okay. That's a little bit tricky question because as a kid, I changed my mind so many times that I can't even count now. But I think I started with something very basic, very weird, like dreaming of being an actress or a model that's what you get for growing up in a patriarchal country i guess <laughs> but then i grew a little bit older i think i somehow switched to wanting to be a detective or a lawyer sort of thing i'm not sure i guess that's how my interest in uncovering mysteries or solving puzzles sort of started so i thought it would be really cool um, to solve some interesting problems to find to find something yeah to, to solve a puzzle as i said before uh, and then Then I also wanted to become a lawyer because another thing which I was interested in was, oh, I can say, you can call it justice, I guess, or uncovering the truth or defending people. Yeah, I think I was thinking about defending people in the courts and all these sort of things. Yeah, so actually I never, it's not like I never wanted to be a scientist. I never considered it. I never felt that it's like an option somehow, I guess, because I'm not coming from an academic family and I didn't really have any scientists around to even think that such a thing exists in the world. <laughs> But I feel like with uncovering yeah. riddles, I feel like you're not that far off yeah, in science. Yeah, true. <laughs> And so in the end, you ended up in science somehow. How would you explain your main field of research to me if I was a kid of maybe 10 years age? Yeah, that's a, also a very good question indeed. I never try to explain it to a 10 years old kid, but I'll try to do it next time. <laughs> the first time I have a chance. <laughs> okay, I guess now I will practice a little bit. So maybe we'll have to start with uh, talking about the brain in general a little bit. So we as humans can do many sorts of wonderful things like think or dream or feel emotions or like remember some cool things and bad things, also forget bad things. So this is also super interesting. And the brain is that thing that helps us to do it. And this is kind of really weird because brain consists of many, many cells, which we call neurons. And they interact with each other, they send electrical signals and respond to them. And this somehow transforms to this super complex behavior, to these feelings, emotions, thinking, logical reasoning, and all of sort of wonderful things. So how does this happen exactly? And there are different instruments that can help us measure these electrical signals that help neurons communicate. 
but they have the advantages and they also have many, many limitations mm -hmm. and it might be hard to use them and all sorts of things. But there is also another method. Uh, we can model the brain activity. We can try to model what this brain does, like creating computer simulations of this. And this is super, super interesting because it doesn't include any additional super complicated equipment and experiments, all sorts of things. And also what is important, we don't only want to know how exactly these neurons communicate with each other, like from biological point of view, but we want to know what are the mechanisms, the core principles behind it, like maybe the algorithms, sort of. Yeah. And this is what we can uncover doing creating different models and uh, seeing how they behave and what kind of things they can produce and how similar this is to the brain, how complex this can become. Um, I'm not sure how clear this would be for a 10 years old, but <laughs> <laughs> I tried, I, I tried my best. <laughs> I think it's clear. Um, did you always want to do something with neuroscience or where did you start? How did you get to the projects you're working on right now? Yeah, no. So as I said before, <laughs> at first, I didn't even think about science at all. I, maybe I'm not sure I even knew that neuroscience existed as a field. <laughs> Never probably heard such a word before I became a teenager or something. Mm. So as I said, at some time I wanted to become a lawyer and I wanted to defend people or stuff like that or be a detective whatsoever. But anyway, all of these things required no learning history. Mm -hmm. to apply to the correct right university and when I started seriously considering it it was already too late to start learning history because I didn't do it before so I, I guess I just decided to choose from from what I'm, I was already good at um, so yeah I think somehow how I ended up where I am right now was a little bit a chain of random events but, but I guess this is true for many people so My bachelor's degree was in computational linguistics. I did it because I was good in, in math, um, yeah, also in languages, not so bad. So, yeah, this just somehow worked. And I didn't really um, think about what I'm going to do as a computational linguist. I just thought, yeah, I guess, I guess that's going to work. I'm not sure. And uh, yeah, I did a little bit of natural language processing. I worked in the industry for a, for a while, for several years. But during my bachelor, so I was doing my bachelor and working at the same time, But then, uh, I don't know how exactly that happened, but somehow then I discovered that science exists and it's also about solving mysteries and puzzles and all that sorts of things. And uh, this is what I really needed and what I couldn't get uh, out of working in the industry. Or maybe just, yeah, depends on a specific place of work. But I have always been feeling this pressure that what I'm doing is not super meaningful, sort of, that I'm doing all the things that I'm doing just for the heads of the corporations to earn more money, and that's kind of the general purpose of it, and I wasn't okay with that. I wanted to do something more socially meaningful, if you can formulate it this way. Yeah, and that's... Uh, so I, I decided I wanted to solve some cool mysteries of the world, I don't know, and I guess brain is just happened to be one of the biggest mysteries we have on the planet, so yeah, that's how I decided that I, I guess I can try to study brain then, and like linguistics and uh, cognitive science are not far away from each other, so maybe I can just, yeah, somehow get there. Yeah, and yeah my master's was in cognitive science, then I worked in the industry for a little bit more, just to make sure that I'm doing the right decision, then I made sure, and decided to pursue a PhD. Yeah, that I think that is the whole story. <laughs>
and you're mainly focusing on linguistics and uh, brain, but also on machine learning in a way, right? Uh, so I completely stopped doing anything related to linguistics now for some for, for no specific reason. <laughs> it <Okay>. just happened. <laughs> As many things in my life, yeah. I, I think I just somehow uh, got to know a cool professor who was doing computational neuroscience during my master's in cognitive science, and I got interested in the topic, and I figured, wow, actually, I have some good programming skills, so why don't I apply them to this sphere? Mm -hmm. Like, I can be really useful in this. I'm not a biologist, so I cannot really do some cool brain experimental science, so probably I will serve better in the computational sphere. Yeah, I tried, and it really worked. And that's why yeah, I decided to do my PhD in computational neuroscience as well. Yeah. And are they, when you think about the field you're working in, are there any really fascinating, late-breaking findings that came out that really surprised you? Yeah, so this is a little bit complicated because... Um, so in computational neuroscience, I'm working with spiky networks. This is a specific uh, type of networks, and they're different from the neural networks we normally hear about. Like it's not a uh, this field where a huge breakthroughs, which be all people know about, happen, like transformers or when convolutional neural networks happen or something. Like now everyone is talking about ChatGPT mm -hmm. or DALI, but no one is really talking about spiky networks. It's also because the field is not so huge, and yeah, maybe. Uh, big companies do not invest that much money in this and not many people are doing that. So I wouldn't say we ha we as a field had a really as huge breakthroughs as some other fields which I just named. Maybe maybe I would just talk about some general general topics which are popu mm -hmm. quite popular and I think quite promising nowadays. So what I'm doing is purely software thing, like we're developing some algorithms, some mechanisms and trying them out. But there are also people who are creating hardware, specific hardware, which is good for this specific kind of models. And this is, I think, what is super important right now. Right now. I wouldn't say it's more important than software, but as I said, really meaningful because if we come back to this regular, regular artificial neural networks topic, I think one of the reasons they became so good, so popular and yeah, so widely widely distributed, I'm not sure, widely used, is that um, there, has been, there have been breakthroughs in hardware for them, in these GPUs, graphical processing units to run these neural networks, and uh, they became a huge thing, and this made the progress, uh, I, I guess, inevitable, and this made, made the progress happening in this field of neural networks. So I think if uh, the thing of the same yeah, of the same volume, of the same power happens uh, in the field of spiking neural networks, computational modeling, then I guess uh, we can also make our models better, much better, can develop them much better. So, yeah, this is a very, very long way to answer the question, but my answer would be that uh, the most important things that are happening right now, the best breakthroughs are mostly concerning the hardware development for them. And it's all different neuromorphic computers, neuromorphic chips, or I don't know, there are different cool kinds of stuff. Many physicists are working on that, not only neuroscientists, like for example, there exist photonic networks where uh, the signal is transmitted with photons, and I think this is this is super interesting. This is not exactly my topic, but I think that's where uh, the way for making spiking networks computational modeling great begins. Yeah. Yes. Okay, we have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. um, which scientist would you want to have um, a tea or a coffee with, dead or alive? 
Yeah, this is very tricky because I have to pick one, so I'm not sure. I guess I will stick to some scientist who is not alive right now, because if I name someone mm. alive, then other alive scientists wouldn't be very pleased, I guess, if they got to, <laughs> wouldn't be very happy to know <laughs> that they're not the targets for having it you with. So I guess, um, can, can I name two actually? Yeah, you can, sure. Okay, okay. Then I will take one from my home country. Uh, so I come from Russia. And uh, if I'm thinking about Russian scientists, I would name Andrei Sakharov. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not sure, uh, I, I guess I will, should tell a little bit. So uh, he was a scientist who came up with a hydrogen bomb and developed a hydrogen bomb. But it's not why, it's not like I'm super impressed by him developing a hydrogen bomb. It's more a, Sort of, sort of Oppenheimer-like Oppenheimer -like journey that he had, that he developed such a mass weapon that was super destructive and dangerous, and he didn't realize that until it was too late. And the best thing about this story is that when he realized that, he started doing everything which was in his power to stop, to try to stop Soviet government from doing nuclear uh, weapon testing and trying to fight for human rights in Soviet Union. So this was in the time of the Cold War. And this was, of course, extremely difficult, and he was uh, considered a political dissident, and he was uh, sent to, to an exile to my home city, by the way, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. But he never stopped doing what he was doing, and uh, I think this is really admirable, so it would be really cool to have yeah. tea with, with him and talk about what it is like to do such huge things and to live with the consequences of your actions and try to yeah. make up with it. Who would be your second scientist? Yeah, and my second scientist would be a woman called Rita Levi-Montalcini. She was an Italian scientist and she received a Nobel Prize. Uh, oh, actually, the Andrei Sakharov also received a Nobel Prize, but for peace, not for science <laughs> that he did. And this lady uh, received a Nobel Prize for the science that he was doing, which was she discovered a nerve growth factor for nerve cells. Uh, and this was super important for developing different experimental treatments uh, for cancer or for neurodegenerative diseases later and all sorts of sort of cool things. But uh, another reason why I would like to, to have a chat with her was also due to her some social reasons, I guess, because she also had a super interesting life journey she was doing science um, in uh, 1940s, so at the time well, when Mussolini was a dictator in Italy and it was super hard and she came from a Jewish family. So uh, at some point she was doing science, she finished the university, but then she was not allowed to stay in academia any longer. And um, this was super sad, but she actually never gave up and she organized a lab in her own bedroom to keep doing what you're doing, to study cheek embryos, yeah, nerve growth factor in this. And she managed and she had to escape Italy for some time when it was too dangerous. She, she worked with the US partners and then she also came back and founded several universities in Rome. And this was, yeah, I think this was also extremely inspiring to be such a person. Yes, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have to end the interview uh, here. I think I was revving up anyway. <laughs> thank you so much for being here and uh, for doing an interview with us. Thank you for inviting again. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palme and Sönke Löw. 
Produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne. Produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.